Open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 19. As I've uh, thought about the uh, deficit in our general fund that we had a couple of months ago, I realized maybe I should be teaching something different in church, like how to get rich. Uh, I know one of our members looked at the cover of the bulletin, and the sermon title is How to Get Rich, and he said, yes, yes. So I thought we would start by learning from some of the experts. Uh, This guy's a Christian and he's rich, right? All you have to do is uh, build a better duck call and the world will beat a path to your door. There you go. If you don't know, he actually invented putting a little, little, uh, like a little piece of metal, a little BB, a little uh, ball bearing inside the duck call so that when, when it gets all wet, when the stuff coming out of your mouth, it doesn't stick together, it keeps working. He, he actually did build a better duck call and patented it and made a zillion dollars. And of course now uh, you can buy your pajamas and everything else uh, with his name on it. You, you know, if, if you can't make things, maybe you could get rich like this guy. You know who this guy is? The guy that wants to bring the Sonics back to Seattle. Chris Hansen is his name. He's a Seattle guy who, who uh, moved on to uh, you know, uh, San Francisco or wherever, and he's figured out how to make money with money. And uh, he was a uh, stock manager and then eventually started his own uh, management fund. And so you could give him your money, and he will make more money, and he'll keep part of it, and he'll give the rest of it back to you. That's an awesome way to make money, don't you know? If, you all just give your money to me, and someday I'll give some of it back. Uh, that would be, be a great way. And, of course, if you, can't, if you can't invent things, and if you aren't smart enough to make money with money, you could just make money by being a celebrity. Just be Paris Hilton. And uh, just get $150,000 for showing up at a party. Just, just be something, you know? If you, if you don't have the intelligence to create or to make, just be who you are. You're not that impressed with that, are you? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus had a plan for accumulating wealth, and it's got three steps. Let's read about it in Matthew chapter 20. You're still not sure what I'm going to say today, are you? <laughs> Excuse me, Matthew chapter 19. Don't worry. Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life, may may have eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter life, Keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack? Now, if you're really smart about the Ten Commandments, you know that Jesus didn't quote the first of the Ten Commandments. And when he goes on to tell this man what he needs to do to inherit eternal life, it's really a reflection on the first of the Ten Commandments. 
put in the way Jesus would verbalize it. Verse 20 again, all these I have kept from my youth, what still do I lack? Jesus said, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus' plan for accumulating treasure starts with selling all your possessions, giving away the money, and following him. There it is. We can close our Bibles and go home now. Because that's how to get treasure according to Jesus. Now, the question that we obviously are, are need to ask is, does that mean that we have to sell everything literally and give it away in order to be Christians? No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. Follow it. Um, in fact, this story is recorded in more than one place in the Gospels. Look at it at the end of the story here in Mark. The, the disciples were going, wow, wow. You know, they were, they were really rocked by this because up until now, it was considered really spiritual to be rich. Let's put it that way. If you really followed God, he would bless you financially. That was the plan. Have you heard that anywhere lately? It's an old idea. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. The issue here really is a first commandment issue. It's an issue of trust you see, it isn't nearly so hard to give away money as it is to give away trusting in your money. That trust in money is just one of several valuable possessions that we need to give away if we would gain the riches which are eternal. And I want to look at some of those possessions that we need to give away today in order to get the treasure of God, the riches of God. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18, please. Luke 18, we're going to look at the first of those treasures. And the first of those treasures is self-justification. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Also, he spoke this parable or this teaching illustration. That's really what a parable means. He gave this parable to some who trusted in themselves, self-justification. They trust in themselves that they were righteous, and they despised other people. Here's the story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed this way with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat on his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
two men went to worship. They went to the temple. They went there to pray. One of them was very proud of all he had done to demonstrate his own goodness and thereby earn God's favor. He was self-righteous. He justified himself. To be justified is is actually a, a Bible term, a theological term that means to be righteous. And he was self-justifying. I am better than other men because I do this and I do this and I do this and I don't do this and I don't do that. He offered God his own goodness and the other man looked inward and thought of God and he said, I am a sinner. And all he asked God for was mercy. And the result was that that man was made righteous in God's eyes. Now think about mankind's attempt to self-justify, to make themselves righteous by their own standard. How far back does that go that we know of? It goes back to Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and she said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. Now, take a clue here. If he brought of their fat, what had happened to the lamb? It had been killed and blood had been shed. He brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat and the Lord respected Abel with his blood sacrifice, but he did not respect Cain and his offering and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not also be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is you, but you should rule over it. Now, God didn't tell us the whole story, but it would appear that that these two brothers knew that God's standard was a blood sacrifice because God said, hey, he did well and you did not and you can do well. This wasn't like they just blindly brought something they said, well, I hope God likes this. And then he said, arbitrarily, I like that one. No, they knew what the standard was. And when God rejected Cain's offering, he was angry. And God, being gracious, gave him another chance. He didn't say, you failed, you're out, you're done, that's it. He said, you can do well too. Cain went home and thought about it, and he thought, this is what I'll do. I'll kill him, and then my sacrifice will be the only one. God will have to like it. How did self-justification work out for Cain? It got him God's condemnation the payoff of Cain's investment in his self-justification in in following his path and not God's path the payoff was condemnation from God the glorious possibility for those willing to give away their self-justification 
is a relationship with God now and eternity in heaven someday. You could put it this way, the cost to you of salvation is to say no to your own attempt to make yourself into something. It's to say no to your attempt to to offer up to God to say, I, I know Christ died for sin, but I want to offer you my good deeds. Look at how good I am. And humanly speaking, you might be a very good person. And yet in God's sight, you're not, because any sin at all taints who you are. That's why we, we read this wonderful scripture, parts of this chapter this morning. There is no condemnation. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs. We are going to inherit heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. This word glorified is one that we don't, we don't connect with because God didn't spell out everything that stands for. But if you follow that through the New Testament, it's talking about heaven. It's talking about that day when if you have died, your body will be resurrected, reconnected with your spirit, and perfected, and and sin taken away, and you will be perfect in body and soul in heaven forever. If we survive to that day when Christ calls us up, in that event we call the rapture, when our bodies are changed and the, and the sin removed from us and we spend eternity, that's called being glorified. Uh, you know, most of you look at me and you think, boy, you're in pretty good shape now, Pastor Dave. It's a joke, right? <laughs> but someday I'm going to have a perfect body and, more importantly, a perfected spirit, a perfected soul. Sin completely removed. We shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. That's the glorification he's talking about. That's when we will be glorified. And so he's saying right now, the Spirit bears witness with us that we are the children of God, and someday we will have the glories of heaven together. The riches, the riches, the treasure of heaven someday and relationship with God now are freely accessible to those who are willing to sell and give away their self-justification. The second point in Jesus' plan for gaining wealth is this. We need to give away our self-esteem. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. Our society prizes self-esteem. The common wisdom is that when you look in the mirror in the morning, you should be like Fonz on the old TV show when he goes to comb his hair. And he goes, eh, what can you do with perfection? Look at me. I'm all together. I'm all that. I am a great person That is the epitome of self-esteem. If you can look in the mirror and look back and say, yes, I am great. The surveys of students 
from around the world demonstrate that the youth of America have great self-esteem. Our American students always believe they are better than other students, even though their test scores show that the other students are better than them. But they have great self-esteem. The lack of self-esteem is said to be the source of all manner of problems, like depression, broken relationship, and the failure to succeed. The concept of self-love is very popular, and Jesus understood that when he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Many people, even Christians, have looked at this and say, you see that? Jesus says you have to love yourself first before you can love your neighbor. You know what he actually is saying? He's saying, you already love yourself. Now take that love that is all around you and in you and through you and just give that to the neighbor. When you go to the grocery store, uh, you know, last night we were at Fred Meyer and and they have expanded their quick checkout and it's like uh, 12 items or less, 12 items or less, 12 items or less, 12. When do the normal people get to go through the, the checkout stand, you know? And you get way over here, and it's like, oh, Lord, have mercy. You know? You know what that is? That's self-love. I don't want to wait in line. I'm busy. I have things to do. I have better places to be. These people, they don't matter. I matter. Now, you don't think that way, do you? Because when you go, you look for the longest line. And you say, oh, yes. Oh, yes, go ahead of me. Go ahead of me, please. Oh, no, please, I insist. When the store closes at four in the morning, then you'll get your groceries checked out, right? Not bloody likely. We all love ourselves. And Jesus said, I know you love yourself. I know you want yourself to go first. I know you want yourself to be taken care of. Now, what you need to do is just give that away to your neighbor what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him. Zebedee's sons were James and John, the apostles. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to him with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said, grant that these two sons of mine may sit one on your right hand, the other on your left hand in your kingdom. You know, now, you understand what they're asking. They're asking, make these your number two and your number, your number, your number one and your number two guys. But Jesus answered, verse 22, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am about to be baptized with? And they said, we are able! They weren't. So he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup and you will be baptized with the baptism I am about to be baptized with. That's a reference most likely to their future martyrdom, giving their lives for their faith. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. And when the ten, the other ten apostles, when they heard what was going on, they were upset. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
And those who are great, who are something in the world's terms, exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. A term has been coined based on this passage and others in Christian circles over the years, and it's this, servant leadership. The idea that even the 12 apostles, now think of it, they went out and did miracles, uh, many of them wrote scripture, they were, you know, Peter was the guy who preached the first sermon on the first day of the church of Jesus Christ, and 3,000 people got saved that day, and it went on and on and on. These were These were men who were highly effective in God's work. And he says, you want to be great? Be a servant. And what he's saying, he's not saying stop preaching. He's not saying stop leading, if that's your calling from God. But he's saying do it with the mentality of service. I am here to help you. I'm not here to exalt myself. I'm not here to get my pat on the back. I'm not here so people will say, oh my, look at you. You're a dedicated servant of God. No. I am here for you. Um, A little easier to talk about Courtney when she's not here. She's downstairs leading children's church. I think missionaries in Japan are servants because that is a tough place to do the Lord's work. It's a hard language to learn. As she said, it's an expensive place to live, and it's slow going to win people to Christ. You have to be there to to help the Japanese people not to build your own reputation because nobody's going to look at at a guy who builds one church over his whole lifetime and say, wow, he's really a great missionary. And that's because they're looking with human eyes and not God's eyes. People are servants when they say, I am here for you. I'm not here for me. God calls us to give away our pursuit of ourself and to just invest in other people. I would not be here speaking God's word to you today if it were not for people who loved me more than they loved themselves. My parents prayed this prayer before we were born. My sister and I, my sister is here from Ohio. God, don't ever give us children unless they'll believe in Christ. And you know what they sacrificed? They sacrificed years of waiting. Seven years and then four years. I believe I'm a Christian because of their commitment to God first and self second. One of their disciples, a woman named Elaine, laid aside her own comfort to be a Sunday school teacher of squirrely little kids. I'm sure I sat perfectly in a chair every week. (laughs) And one day she said, does anybody want to accept Christ in their heart? And I said, yeah, I want that. The Seaforts, 
were junior high youth leaders. And again, I'm pretty sure I was really a good junior higher. I don't remember a thing they taught me, but I know they love me, and they love the Lord. At a time in my life when I needed that, I am the product of God's work through other people who put aside their own desires and invested in me. That's what Mission Month is about. It's about saying, am I pursuing my own agenda or am I pursuing God's agenda? Am I trying to make my life something or am I trying to say, I will lay down my life for God and for for those other sheep, as Jesus said. There are other sheep that I have to reach, those who don't know me yet. You can spend your days doing what makes you happy so you feel good about your life or you can spend your days investing in others and let God provide your esteem. That's what he says right here. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. I don't know about you, but I'm guessing God's exaltation is better than mine of myself. See, we, we, we craft plans of what will make us into something or make our life good. And we pursue those plans. This will be good. And I need this and I need that and I need the other. And, and those plans always fail because they're based on the, the changes of life. And, and we, we look around and say, why isn't this working? Why don't I feel good about myself? And God says, I'll give you joy. But you have to lay down your life and pick up my life that's really the message, this passage that we read a lot about our reward in heaven someday. That's really the message of this passage. No other foundation can anyone lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. You have to be a born-again person, a person who's believed in Christ before God can exalt you. Now, if anybody builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. God says, look, what are you investing in? He says, I sent my son Jesus Christ to pay for your sin, and you have believed, and I've made you into a, a, a child of mine. Now, what are you doing with that? Are you building with gold, silver, precious stone? Are you investing in serving God and doing things his way? Or are you investing in your own life? God asks us to sell our self-esteem and pursue his life and let him build us up, let him exalt us, let him recognize us. Can you imagine standing before Christ when he's reviewing the deeds of your life and thinking, I wish I had pursued my own agenda more. I wish I had loved myself more. No, I, I think probably just the opposite will be true. Well, we need to give away our self-esteem, our self-justification, and thirdly, we need to give away our self-determination. Um, do you remember the first days of Jesus' ministry and these words? It's pretty, these are pretty, uh, pretty hard-to-believe words. 
From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's important to read verse 17 before 18 because when we read verse 18, it's gonna sound like Jesus just walked up to some guys and said, come follow me. The truth is he'd been preaching around, the message was around, and so this was not, this was not necessarily his first meeting with these people, okay? And yet what he asks is pretty, pretty incredible. From that time, he began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. I can imagine their father going, where do you guys think you're going? <laughs> but they followed him. He called and they followed. This is a very stark example of saying, Who's, whose goals and purposes in life am I going to follow, mine or Christ's? You see, he, he called, and, and they literally dropped the nets and started following him. Wow. That's pretty, uh, pretty extreme. Jesus further defined the concept of lordship a number of times in the Gospels, but one of them is here. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life or to make something of his own life is gonna lose it, but whoever loses, whoever lets go of his life for my sake and the gospels, he will save it. Who is directing your life? The lordship of Christ begins at salvation with a choice you have to make. Now, at salvation, you don't understand all of the ramifications of what you're going to do, but, but the, the, the essence of lordship is there when somebody says to you, look, you're a sinner. You cannot save yourself. Jesus Christ died to pay for your sins. You need to believe in Christ. And at that moment, you have the first decision about the lordship of Christ to make. Do I keep pursuing my own self-justification or do I follow him? Do I obey his instruction to believe him? When you make that decision, you enter a life which is a daily series of opportunities to follow and obey Christ. Every time there's a command from the Bible, it's like Jesus saying, follow me. When you read an instruction that says, don't lie, but tell the truth. That's Jesus saying, the way to walk after me is to tell the truth. And you have a choice to make. Am I going to tell the truth and follow Christ, or am I going to walk the other way? When he says, uh, help to make disciples, as we're talking about during mission month. You have a, a, a decision to make, and really that's broken down into many little decisions. Am I going to help to make disciples this way and this way and this way and this way? You know, I, I can't do them all, but I, I can do some of them. Or am I going to say, you know what, I just, I'm just too busy for that. The things I'm doing with my money are too important 
to, to turn aside and to give it away for, for making disciples. I don't have time to pray every day for missionaries because I have things to do. And God says, are you going to obey me or are you going to pursue your own direction? When I was a kid, I don't know how I found out about this, maybe at school, but I found about this way to make money, and it was called something like youth leadership training or some crazy thing. And what it was was you'd get a catalog about that thick, and it had Christmas cards in it. And, the, and, and you got some order blanks and, you know, some whatever. And the idea was that you were going to take your little uh, uh, catalog of cards and go to the neighbor's house and, uh, you know, knock on their door. Hello, Mr. Smith, wouldn't you like to buy some Christmas cards from me today? You know, to order some Christmas cards. And you can get your name printed on them and so on. And, and I was supposed to get his money. He was supposed to trust me with his money and give it to me. And then we'd order some cards and he'd get some cards back later on. That was the lamest thing I ever tried. <laughs> I think I sold a box or two of cards. Probably my parents bought some for all I know. I don't know. I set that aside. Christianity is not a part-time, commission-based job, but a full-time career. You cannot treat it like something you only do when you want a payday. Jesus paid for our sin, and when we believed in him... We are supposed to respond to his gracious gift to us like this. The Apostle Paul said, I beg you by the mercies of God, the fact that God mercifully saved you and took away your sin and gave you a home in heaven, I beg you based on all of that that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. When you come to faith in Christ, what God desires of you, what he deserves from you, is for you to say, here is my life. The the whole idea of sacrifice is a a visual picture of the Old Testament when the animal was offered and when when the blood was shed, the animal's done. It, It doesn't go back anymore. The difference here is now you put yourself on the altar and you leave yourself there alive to serve God. A living sacrifice. Self-determination is a highly valuable possession which Christ calls on us to give away in favor of dependence on his leadership. Now one of the ways, it's a very concrete way for us to follow the leadership of Christ is in baptism. We're going to have a baptism class start next Sunday night. And if you've never followed Christ in baptism, he calls on us, and if you've never seen the curtains open, we've got a place back there where we do our baptizing. He calls on us to, to, to publicly give a testimony to say, I have believed in Christ. I am following Christ. I have submitted my self-determination to him. I've given it away, and now I'm following him, and I'm here to be baptized to show that. That's what he asks us to do. And that's one of the decisions you have to make. Am I going to follow Christ and obey him, or am I going to determine my own path in life? There's one more, uh, one more valuable that Christ asks us to sell and give away, and that is self-sufficiency. Turn with me to Mark, 
chapter 10, please. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. Now as he was going on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. This is a parallel, a parallel coverage of, of this same episode that we read earlier from Matthew. What we want to see is something a little different here. Verse 20, and he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus was not mad at him. Jesus was not trying to drive him away. He loved him. He said, you, you, you know, I want you to know me. He said, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This, this fellow was rich, and he came to Jesus, and he expected Jesus to lay out three or four more commandments for him, and Jesus said, give away your stuff. And he went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. Wealth. Wealth means... You are not dependent on other people. Now, very few of us ever get to the point where we are so wealthy that we are not dependent on others. Many people pursue that kind of wealth. The people that I showed you at the beginning of this are that wealthy in some ways that they, don't, they could take all of their money and go sit over here with it and live the rest of their life and never have to be essentially dependent on other people. That is a, a great blessing of wealth, to not be dependent on others. Wealth means you don't have to wait for things. I want it right now. How much will it cost? Uh, I'm not sure if anybody here is that wealthy. But that's the kind of wealth people, that's what we want. That's what some people are pursuing. Wealth means you can fix anything. Now, obviously, that's, a, that's an overgeneralization because there are some things you can't fix with money. But what this adds up to is essentially trusting in self. If I have enough money, I'm going I'm to be able to just take care of my life and I'm going to be set. And it goes like this sometimes. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. That's a way in his day to say this guy was self-sufficient. And he fared sumptuously every day. Every day was uh, top of the line for eating and so on. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus full of sores who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. That's another way to say into, the, you know, into heaven, if, you, if I could use that word, in the Old Testament era. It was before uh, the full access to God was made possible by Christ. He was carried into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. 
And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And what, and what did it get him? His independence took him straight to hell. Now again, God's not against people being rich. But the question is, what are you trusting in? Even in your pursuit of money, what are you trusting in? Is your trust in that someday you'll have enough to be self-sufficient? Or are you genuinely walking with God? Because independence can take you to hell. Here's a rich man who got it right. Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich and he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd for he was of short stature. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. That's really insulting. Sorry about all of you that are, that are vertically challenged, you know. I'm going to suggest another phrase for that line though in just a minute. So he ran ahead and climbed up in a tree, for he was, Jesus was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I'm going to stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when he saw it, but when they, when the, the Pharisees saw it, they all complained. He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. That was the Old Testament standard. If you stole, you had to pay back fourfold. You didn't go to jail. And Jesus said, Today salvation has come to this house, because he is also (coughs) a son of Abraham. We really should sing that song this way so our kids get the point of the story. Zacchaeus was a greedy little man, a greedy little man was he. And he robbed from everybody that he saw. He'd rob from me if he could. Okay, I mean, that's, he, that's what he was. And he had an official position with the Roman government to where he could legally steal from people. And that's why all those Pharisees said, you're going to eat at his house? You know, if you like him, you're messed up. Zacchaeus was self-sufficient, but when he met Jesus, he said, there is something better here than self-sufficiency. And what did he do? He, he, he sold what he had and gave it to the poor and followed Christ. He's an example of what Jesus told to the other guy. Now, he didn't impoverish himself. He didn't go out and start begging God doesn't want that for us. But he wants us to take what we have and say, what can I do with that? You know? And and, and all of you who are self-supporting, not self-sufficient, but self-supporting, you all know there's only so many dollars in a month. And you all know there's only so much gas in the tank and all this stuff. And the questions we have to ask on a daily basis are, Am I going to do what is best for me or am I going to pursue God's call through his word and through the church and am I going to do my best to make disciples trusting him to take care of me? Here is the testimony of some people who loved God 
more than their money or their self-sufficiency. Moreover, brethren, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians about some people from Macedonia. Brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their generosity, their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability and beyond their ability... They were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. This was a monetary gift (coughs) to help the saints who were struggling under persecution. And not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. Would you look at this part right here? They gave beyond their ability. What does that even mean? I'm not sure I've ever given beyond my ability. Um, there, there are times when I look at that check that I've written, and, uh, you know, it feels a little bit like God's got a hold of one side and I've got the other side. I know, I know I'm going to give it to him. Not always, frankly. But there are times when I think, boy... somebody brought me a check recently and talked about the blessing of the Lord and they said, I have to give this. I said, yes. Now I'm not just talking about giving, I'm talking about the whole use of your life, of your possessions, of whatever it is that God has given you. The question we have to ask is, is my goal with my stuff self-sufficiency or is my goal to honestly honor God and and let him take care of me. You see, there is a great promise here in the next chapter of 2 Corinthians. Let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And here's the promise. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency, may have an abundance for every good work. Am I going to pursue my own care of myself, my self-sufficiency, or am I going to use my stuff for God and trust Him for my sufficiency? Ah, That's a great challenge. Am I willing to sell and give away my self-sufficiency? On Saturday morning, there's a talk show on Cairo Radio from a place called the Mutual Fund Store. And those guys are experts at telling you where to put your money. (laughs) Just ask them. As long as you got a minimum of 50,000, then they know exactly where you should put your money. And then there's another guy who actually comes on the Cairo radio before them on Saturday morning, and he's an expert, and he'll tell you where to put your money. And there's a few people in Whatcom County who can tell you the best way to use your money. And then there's Jesus who has a plan which is the most expensive plan there is up front. His plan is sell. (laughs) 
sell your self-justification, sell your self-esteem, sell your self-determination, sell your self-sufficiency, give it away. The difference between his plan and the others? Guaranteed response, guaranteed return. His joy and his peace. Provision for your needs now and heaven later. Heavenly Father, help us. Uh, we, we want to be self-sufficient. We think that would just be the greatest thing in the world, Lord. But it wouldn't. What would be the greatest thing in the world is to be strongly connected to you and to be serving you and seeing you provide for our needs. Father, help us. Help us to be on mission with you, laying down our lives, picking up that cross, and following you day by day. I pray in Christ's name, amen.